St. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a very familiar passage amongst Christians of all traditions. Um, it's often one of those passages that is uh, pulled out of the context of Romans, not out of context necessarily, but pulled out and then let stand alone, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that uh, he sent his only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 6.23 is one of those verses that we learn by heart. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is a truth, it's a foundational truth of our faith that is essential but it must be understood correctly and then followed correctly and in the correct context because it can have uh, negative uh, results if misapplied, misunderstood, and then, un and then carry out in at least a, a, a less than accurate way of understanding it. So... Welcome to Deep in Scripture. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, 12 through 23. And uh, as usual, I'm Marcus Grota, your host, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And Ken, we received, as usual, an email that I'd like us to address first before we get into Romans 6, 12 through 23. Um, and Ken, I'm going to take the easy part. I'm going to read it and let you answer it. How about that? <laughs> okay. That's all right. This comes from Jim. And he writes, Dear Marcus and Ken, I have a problem with your emphasis on baptism as the means and source of this new life in Christ. What Paul says in Romans 6 4 is all well and good, except that in my life, for most of the people I have known, including myself, baptism seems to have had no effect whatsoever. My, quote, old self, unquote, and, quote, sinful body, unquote, were certainly not freed from sin. It wasn't until I was an adult that my life changed when I put my faith in Christ. And saying that this was merely my infant baptism, baptism coming to life is mere theological fiction. Thanks, Jim. Ken, to a certain extent, I can relate to what he says because I was baptized very young as a Lutheran. And it didn't seem to make one rip of a difference until at age 21, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and then my life by grace has been changed ever since. It could seem that that baptism didn't make any difference. Right, yeah, that that is a good question. And it's a question that, uh, as you say, many people have. I, I think the, the question that we have to kind of rephrase the question as, does this mean then that baptism is a pure symbol uh, and that it has no effect upon a human being? Or <clears throat> does it have an effect? But um, the ways you see the um, the see those effects is different in different people. Um, there's a there's an analogy here I think that might help us. On the day that I was born, and presumably you were born here in the United States, maybe in Ohio there, um, 
the day we were born, we were Americans because our parents were Americans and we were citizens of this country. But did we understand, did, did we understand what it means to be an American citizen at that point? Well, obviously we did not. That takes years and years. And in fact, there's going to be people to die today who still don't understand what that means to be an American citizen, even though they've lived their whole life in this country. So there's a process of internalization that takes place. Now, one may say, well, that's that's all well and good. Um, but is that unreal? Well, not in the political realm. It's not unreal. It's real. You really are an American citizen, even if you don't live up to that. In the realm of grace, in the realm of the church, in the realm of faith, uh, it's also true that our heart is truly forgiven in baptism. And that's what Paul says here, that we're united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a theoretical or a theological fiction. That's a, that's, that's a mystical, or we might say metaphysical reality. Now, how do I see that happening in my life? Well, Maybe if we reflect upon our life, we might see that that effect was there before we realized it. For example, when you were a small child and somebody wanted you to do something wrong, you know, St. Augustine tells the story of stealing pears, you know, in in uh, in his native town of Hippo there. Um, what what would you have done? Did, did you ever say, oh, no, no, I shouldn't do that because that's stealing or I shouldn't, uh, whatever the particular temptation may have been. Well, that's grace working in your life, and that grace is because you're baptized. Now, it's also a matter of natural conscience as well, so sometimes it's difficult to tell whether the influence is from the natural conscience or from baptism. But here's the dilemma that we're faced with. Either we judge the statements of sacred scripture based upon our experience, or we take the we take the, the statements of scripture as understood in the tradition of the church. And we take those as truth, and then we see how our experience either conforms or doesn't conform to that. You know, Jesus said, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. Well, there have been many times that I thought that I've asked and I've sought and I've knocked, and it doesn't seem like the answer has come. Did that mean that Jesus' word wasn't true? I'd say, no, I don't think it was. There's something more mysterious going on there that I don't understand. Maybe I've been asking in the right way or according to the will of God or wherever it may be. Judging the human person is a very complex situation. That's why psychology is not uh, like engineering. It's not you just engineer a machine and it go, it works, right? Human psychology is much more complex. It seems the same is true here as well. This email is a good transition point from where we uh, left off last week with Romans chapter 6. Really, we, we covered all the way through 14, but pretty much through 11, verse 11, 1 through 11. And then now we can pick up with verse 12 through 23. It really is a good point here because we need to remember, even as I read that passage at the introduction to the program, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is writing to baptize Christians for whom all those things that we talked about last week in verses 1 through 11, where Paul enumerates a long list of things that are now true for the baptized believer. But that means that 
as we move into this passage, that the freedom that we've received as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ, the freedom from sin, is now a freedom to act, a freedom to yield. And in baptism, we have been freed from the clutches, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, from the reign of sin in our bodies that was there as a result of the sin of Adam and as our being born in the long lineage of humanity. We have, by, by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, we have been freed from that. The old is gone, the new has come. We're now new creations. We're children of God. We've been freed from that reign, and now we're called to choose. Who to respond? And it's not a one-time choice because I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior at some Bible camp 52 years ago, and I've set my trajectory for all time. No, that's the beginning. And in fact, when I did that 50-some years ago, and went to the Bible camp and came forward and muddied my knees in the mud before that little altar by Lake Erie, I was really carrying out the call of my baptism that I had received years before. I was, by God's yeah. grace, that was still being offered to me. And that's really the point of the passage we're moving into now, Ken. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And you see that in the transition from what we talked about last week, verse 11, where he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Now, what does that mean that I'm going to consider myself dead to sin and alive to God? And Paul goes right on to give us the answer. That means that you don't let sin reign or have dominion in your mortal body so as to obey its lust. And when you, you know, bowed your knees in the mud, you know, 50 some years ago, you you were saying, no, I don't want sin to reign in my mortal body anymore. I want to present my members as members of righteousness. What our what our emailer is 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 getting at, I think, or what he's the the struggle that he's pointing to is something that we all must acknowledge, and that is that it's not a one time thing. Letting sin reign is not a one time thing. Where I said, okay, I've said no to sin. I say to God, now my life is completely changed. And Paul Paul is implicitly admitting that fact that it's not a one time thing. Because this whole, this whole passage is a passage of exhortation. The passage before, the one we studied last week, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, essentially, he's giving us the ontological, the real foundation, the, re, the foundation in reality. This is baptism. You are in Christ. You're a new creature. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Now the question is, how am I going to live that out? Am I going to live that out by continuing to live in that kingdom of darkness? Or am I going to stay in the kingdom of light and present my life to instruments of righteousness? And so the, the life that he's imagining here is one, it's going to have its ups and downs, but it's got a trajectory to it, right? It's going in the right direction. And we hear that so often, at least I hear it often, and I'm sure that others do too, in the kind words of our priests in confession, you know, when we go in and we, we admit that we've done wrong, we say, mea culpa, my guilt, my, my fault. Yet the priest will say, you know, 
But the important thing to remember is that you came to confession. You humbled yourself before God, and now you want to get back on the right track. The trajectory is in the right direction. Well, Ken, in two weeks, we're going to deal with this when even Paul himself admits the continuing struggle of the Christian in the second part of chapter 7 of Romans, when he, str- yeah, he talks about right. the struggle he has. And, 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 and Christians who interpret Romans differently um, want to imply that Paul is speaking about the way he was before he had surrendered to Christ. But he's talking about afterwards and the process yeah. and the ongoing yeah. journey. And I, I still think one of the best books for this is uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, because the minute that you surrender to Jesus Christ, that old demon's going to wake up and say, oh, I, I goofed. Sorry, Screwtape. Uh, now what do I do? And the whole book is about how to destroy the journey of the Christian who has surrendered right. to Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, and that's what we're talking that's about right. here. And when we, when we look into this passage then in Romans six twelve through 23, He's talking about, okay, now that we've been saved in Christ, now that we've, by baptism, have been a a new child of God, freed from sin, uh, are we therefore, does it matter how we live? We talked a bit about that in in the first part of Rome, on Romans Hmm. 6, and he goes again, well, now what then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace, he says in verse 15. Now, this passage, just a little bit of an overview, Ken, um, that if you go to our website, deepinscripture.com, you can see the worksheet that Ken and I have put together and are using. And uh, it'd be nice to follow along. Some of the words have been color-coded so you can see what we're following. Uh, And, of course, I also tell you, if you're teaching a Bible study in your local church on this, use these sheets and run with it. That's why we're doing this program is to help to help you draw closer to Christ and maybe empower you to lead your own Bible study at a local level. But just a couple things um, to draw your attention to. First of all, um, Ken and I have put together a little summary because Paul is speaking in a logical flow. Sometimes he repeats himself. Sometimes he's dipping back. Sometimes he's bringing up uh, truths that he assumes his audience understands. But there's a flow of his argument. And you can hear this, uh, we've put it here in, in uh, seven steps, if you will, that think about this is what's true, that he is what he's saying in this passage. Number one, you and I were once slaves to sin, destined to die, free and free from righteousness. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Number two, sin reigned in our bodies and our passions ruled. That's what he says in verses 12 and following. Number three, but Christ set us free from sin by grace through baptism. And that's essentially a summary of what we talked about last week. Then four, we are now free, therefore, to choose who or what we will serve. In other words, we weren't free before. We were slave to sin, but now we're free to reestablish who we will serve. Step five, who or what we choose has a trajectory. 
a direct cause and lasting effect. Ken, this reminds me of when my son and I took hunting classes recent, last year, and we're getting prepared, you know, for our going out and taking care of the excess deer on our property. But one of the things they, they warned us about is that when you fire a gun, you fire an arrow. It isn't just that little target you're looking at. You always have to look beyond that, where the trajectory of that bullet is going to go if you miss. So you can't be just short-sighted. you got to be as long-sighted as you can. And that's what Paul's talking about. Who we choose, what we choose, has a trajectory. Point six, obedience is first a matter of the heart. And seven, Mm -hmm. but not merely to conscience, but to the church. Now, Ken, flesh that out a little bit. That that outline. There, there, there's there's so <laughs> there's so many wonderful things in that in that summary, but just think about it like this for just a moment. When you're using their hunting analogy there, which is so true. People are looking just in the narrow with narrow vision, just at the one target. Let's say whatever it is, I want to marry that person, or I want to, you know, or if it's sin, I want to have sex with that woman, or I want to, you know, I want to get be famous in this way, or I want to be known this way, or whatever. And they don't look at the long term cause and effect, and that's part of the problem with our what I would call our deficient moral education today. People don't understand that moral choices are going to have consequences, and those consequences are not just moral. They're also in every other way. So, for example, you make a moral choice to live a life of drunkenness, of uh, drug abuse. It's going to destroy your life, and so many lives have been destroyed in that way. Um then there, there's also the point about the obedience of the heart. Um, you know, there's two ways to control people, either from the outside or from the inside. And if you have a real law-heavy society, don't do this, don't do that, da 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 whether it's a capitalistic system or whether it's more of a communist system, if you're controlling people from the outside, that that is a, that, that's like a burden on everyone because you just got to always keep them under wraps, right? But if people are changed from the inside, you don't need a bunch of laws. And this is a point that modern libertarians, at least Catholic libertarians, sometimes make. And I'm not a libertarian. I'm not advocating for it. But I'm saying the idea that what we need to focus on is virtue, people changing from the inside. So you don't need a lot of laws to tell them not to do the bad things because they won't want to do them anyway. And then then the question comes up, but how do you judge what's good and bad, right? And you put it right there in that seventh point. Our conscience is, in a sense, um, you might say the final court of appeal, but how do we form that conscience? According to the teachings of the church. And Paul says this, as you put on the outline there so well by the standard of teaching to which you have been uh, to which you've been committed so um, it's the church's teaching that forms the conscience and then it's our act of our wills which is I'm going to live in accord with my conscience I know what's right I'm going to do what's right and when I do what's right then there's the consequence of eternal life whereas if I don't if I live in accord and I'm a slave to sin the consequences are, or the wages are, death. I, you know, Ken, right now, uh, an example rises uh, 
to the top because in the recent news, uh, I can't imagine anyone not hearing about this girl who, having terminal cancer, um, had been told months ago that she only had six months to live and she's facing the result of that, um, made a choice based on her conscience. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the last thing I'm going to do is stand in, in judgment of her, either her choice or her direct trajectory. But when you listen to right. the words that she said at the end, you get evidence of her conscience, of how she understood this choice mm-hmm. that she was making. And to me, it's an example of why it's so essential that we f- help our young people be, be formed in what is true so that if they face with that kind of a difficult decision, they understand the trajectory, the, the choice they're making, which may seem like a short-term alleviation of pain or an avoidance of pain, has a long-term eternal result. And, you know, that's, it's so crucial that we help people understand so that the obedience of their heart is according to a standard of teaching that is true and not merely cultural or private. Well, when you're talking about the formation of young people, this is is so important because, you know, people have two tendencies, at least, that I've seen. Uh, One is that they simply never face the, the hard and difficult questions. They their life is about avoiding the difficult questions. So like the question that this young lady named Brittany, I think her name was, uh, you know, the, the forest, people are not facing those choices. Or the other thing is that young people quickly jump to uh, answers or conclusions without deliberated or deliberate consider, maybe deliberative is the right word, deliberative uh, consultation with different sources of uh, answers that may be given to this. They don't actually consult with the truth in these matters. They simply arrive at decision. And one of the reasons they do that is exactly what Paul is saying here in this very important verse, verse 17, when he speaks about the standard of teaching to which you're committed. What they do is they see their conscience as the criterion by which they make the decision. In other words, they make themselves the criterion. I'm the one who will decide what's right and wrong. What they're confusing is two different things. One is the agent of the decision-making, which they certainly are. No one can make that decision except that young lady. But that doesn't mean that she is the criterion of right or wrong. The criterion of right or wrong lies outside of her to which she must conform her conscience and you and me in the same way. In other words, we're the, it's, it's just like the question about abortion. A woman is the one making the choice. You remember the old, the old canard that people used to say, it's the woman's choice? They say, oh yes, absolutely. It's a woman's choice, of course. Who else's choice is going to be? But is her choice according to truth? That's the question. And that's what people are constantly confusing within our culture. So when you talk about the formation of young people, we need to help them to see, yes, you're going to be making these decisions, but you have to make them according to truth. And that takes time to form the conscience. And this decision of truth is, for example, in the case we use, is so crucial. I heard a joke in the last week, it was voting week, 
and the the, the joke was about a, a a senator who died and was standing on the edge of heaven, you know, and, and St. Peter says, well, I'm going to send you to hell for a day, and then you'll come back to heaven, and you can choose where you're going to go. And the guy says, well, I want to go to heaven. He says, well, you, this is the rule. You go to hell first. So he goes, to, spends a day in hell, and he gets down there, and it's a golf course, and they're having martinis and steak dinners, and all his buddies are there. <laughs> all the, you know, they're having a great old time. It's a beautiful, beautiful day, wonderful time. He comes back to heaven and spends a day, and they're floating in the clouds, playing their harps for 24 hours, and, and, and the senator decides, you know, I, I don't think I, I want to spend my time in heaven. So Peter says, where do you want to go? He says, you know, hell sounded really nice. Uh, let me go there. St. Peter says, okay. Sends him to hell. When he gets to hell, it's a desolate desert with junk, and all of his friends yeah. are there in garbage bags pulling up the garbage. And then he complains. He says, wait a second. Why was it so nice yesterday and so bad today? And he says, well, that was campaigning. Now you voted. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, the analogy is there, the campaign slogans may not be the truth, but they're going to convince you to follow along. And then you vote. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. What's truth? What forms your conscience? And then what are you going to choose? And so you've got to make sure that your choice is true and clear and accurate so you know the trajectory of where your choice is going to take you. Now, we're, we're up against a break, Ken. So let's break there. When we come back, we'll dig a little deeper into chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. And we'll look at what this is calling us to do as we seek to seek to live out our baptism in obedience to Christ in his church. God bless you. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program. I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, Marcus's guest is Dale Alquist, president of the American Chesterton Society. Find out how his studies on G.K. Chesterton led him home to the true faith, the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org 
or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. And again, if you would, uh, I invite you to go to deepinscripture.com and and, uh, click on the the, the documents there. You can listen to old episodes of the program, but you can also find the worksheet that we're looking at today. And there's a lot that we'd like to look at in this passage, though we did summarize it. So we've looked, in, in essence, at all the topics already that are in the Scriptures. But Ken, I'd like you, if you would, uh, if dig a little deeper into verse 17, because he says something very profound that I think particularly people who want to take verse 23 as if it stands alone, that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We certainly believe that to be true, but it has to be understood within the right context of the church. Verse 17 so strongly emphasizes that when he says, but thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Talk more deeply about his phrase, the standard of teaching. Well, I think before we uh, sort of delve into that, we we can notice the first words that he begins verse 17 with. It's this exclamation, thanks be to God. Now, why should you be so thankful to God? Uh, Because uh, the transition that he's made for you in your life. And that transition has been being the slave of sin to a true life of obedience to the heart. We can talk about this more in a minute, but I think that Paul here is is saying that everybody's life is going to be a slave to something, and you might say. We're going to serve something in some way. And you know, if you look at human life real carefully, you really do begin to see that, don't you? That people end up giving their lives, whether it's to a, a career, where they give it to, uh, maybe just, some people give it to sports, you know, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. Other people give it to more things that are directly evil. But he says, thanks be to God. You were once a slave of sin. Now your obedience arises from the heart. But what does it lead to? It leads to the standard of teaching, the mark of teaching with which you were that you were committed to. Now the word committed is a little bit, little bit weak here, I think, because the word that he uses here is the word paradidomi, which is related to the word paradosis, which is the word tradition in Greek. Right? So what he's saying is that from the heart you have been you've been traditioned with this this standard of teaching. In other words, the standard of teaching is the apostolic faith. That's what Christ gave to the apostles. That's what the apostles then passed on to those first churches that they began uh, starting in various places. Now, in the book, in the case of Rome, we know that that uh, the church already existed there before the apostles got there. But still, whoever brought the, the gospel there originally gave the teaching of the apostles. And he says, you've been committed to that. Can, and you've been traditioned with that. That is such an, tradition. It's such an important point that you make in that when I was an evangelical pastor, I kind of 
assumed, as so many of us did, that the Bible is the carrying of the gospel to new people. But in essence, every single letter of the New Testament was written to Christians who already had received the foundational faith that the writer of the epistle, whether it's Ephesians or Galatians or First Peter, um, are building upon. They're not, Paul is not, he's not trying to teach them new things. He's building upon things they've already received. Well, and this, this is what gives unity to the church, to Christians. I've been, recently I've been working through again uh, the famous document, The Unity of the Catholic Church by St. Cyprian, written in the third century, as I'm translating and commenting on it. And I'm impressed by how he makes the point that it is the teaching of Christ given to the apostles which gives us the unity. That's why Paul says, for example, Philippians, to be of one mind, to be of one heart, to be united. Why? Because there is a standard there. You know, I was thinking about this regard to uh, Catholic politicians, and people say, well, this politician is Catholic, and she believes this, and this politician is Catholic, but he believes something different. As if, you know, we're kind of in a democracy here, and we sort of throw in our vote, and whoever wins, well, that gets to be the Catholic vision. But that's not the Catholic vision. There is a standard by which we live. It's the standard of Scripture and tradition handed down by the Church. That's what Paul's referring to here. Now, what he's asking of the Roman Christians, as well as you and me today, is that our obedience to that standard of teaching, that mark of the, that mark of tradition, like like a nail mark. It's like a, a uh, it's like a mark that you put on a wall. You say, "There's the standard. Go for that." You see, and he's saying, "You've been. This is part of your tradition. You've been traditioned with this." Now, all you got to do is hang on to that. So that's an, it has an objective character to it. But the subjective part is that we are to obey that from the heart, not just out of grudging obedience, but from the heart we are to embrace that standard of teaching. During the break, you pointed out, and I, I don't want you to forget this because I think it was very powerful. Long after Romans was written, we assume, not, I'm not sure how many years, but after Romans, even this was probably Paul's last letter in Second Timothy. Um, Paul is writing yeah. to his fledgling bishop, uh, trainee, if you will, and he deals with the same issues. And so what's key about this is in Romans, Paul is writing, I, I think, standing beside Timothy, if I remember right, uh, to the Romans, telling them to hold on to that which they had heard from the beginning. Second Thessalonians, he says the same thing in Second Thessalonians 2, stand firm on the traditions that you were taught. But here later, when Paul is passing on the baton to Timothy, he's insisting that he does the same thing. Yeah, in, in, in First Timothy, oh, excuse me, in Second Timothy, as you're right, it is the last letter that Paul writes on his earthly life in Second Timothy one thirteen, he Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound words, or this pattern. The word is logos, but it could mean teachings here too. Hold on to the pattern of sound words or teachings, which you. What does he say? You heard from me, right? 
you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So what's what's he saying here? He's saying that in faith and in love that we share in Jesus Christ, I have passed on to you this pattern of sound words. Now, since you're going to take my place as a bishop, as in succession from the apostle, your job is to hold on to that. And then look at verse 14. Now, not just hold on, but guard, protect, keep this good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, this word is very interesting, Marcus, because it's it's related to the word that we're looking at. Um, he says, hold on to the good deposit, the paratheke, the thing that's been deposited with you. And this is the same word that Paul uses elsewhere in 1 Timothy when he says, I know in whom I have believed, and I am, um, and I am certain that he's able to keep that which I have. Now, the traditional King, King James Version says, that which I have committed to him. But I think it's a better translation. Some modern versions say, that which he's committed to me. What has God committed to us? He's committed to this, us, and especially the bishops of the church, the deposit of faith. And that's what this word paratheke means. The deposit of faith. And that's exactly the way they translated it into Latin, as the, the good deposit. So here's the point. There's this standard of teaching. Paul is alluding to that standard in Romans, and he's referring to it in 2 Timothy. That's the standard of teaching to which we should obey with all of our heart and soul. The, uh, the wonderful new catechism of the Catholic Church, which we have been blessed to uh, receive in our lifetime, I strongly recommend to anyone, often I'll get comments from people and, you know, they don't understand what the church really knows, or like you said, some Catholic politicians that have not taken the time to know their faith. There's no excuse. We have the catechism, and the catechism is a wonderful catechism. But in the very, very beginning of the catechism, uh, in the introduction, on the, when, when St. John Paul writes about uh, why this is. And uh, Ken, you're turning it to there because I want you to see it. It's such a great statement. The very, very beginning in the Apostolic Constitution, Fide Depositum, on the publication of the Catechism. Do you see what he says? He says, To my venerable brothers, the cardinals, patriarchs, archbishops, bishops, priests, deacons, and to all the people of God. Here's the point. What does he say? Guarding the deposit of faith is the mission which the Lord entrusted to his church and which she fulfills in every age. The very thing, Ken, that you said that Paul took responsibility for was past telling the people at Rome to hold on to, passing on to Timothy, and then in 2 Timothy 2.2, telling Timothy to choose other guys that could do the same, on and on. Here we are 2,000 later, and the church still recognizes that our responsibility isn't to kind of discover what's true or to figure out what's true, what kind of seems right, or where the, where the culture is going. Oh, you know, I, oh, I feel so sorry for, you know, I, and, and so it's all about hyper-tolerance. No, it's about guarding the deposit of faith that's been passed on in our heart and living it out in our lives. 
And that's what gives stability to the church throughout all the ages. This is why it is so important for the Catholic Church, especially the official teachers of the church, the bishops of the church, to continue to inculcate and to to teach the faith because it's that fidelity which the church has to the deposit of faith, to the content of what Christ taught us through his apostles that gives stability and is like a beacon for our culture. I mean, our culture doesn't, doesn't even know how to begin looking for truth. Well, if the church can lovingly and engagingly articulate that truth, it may, by God's grace, call people home to Christ in a relationship with Christ and his church. And we do see that around today. We see people both outside the Catholic Church that are good-hearted Christians. They really do love God, and they want to serve God, but they just don't know the message. And then there are other people who've completely rejected God. Maybe they're call themselves atheists or just nothing at all, and yet when they hear the beautiful message of the, the gospel, of Christ's love and his grace, but it's also a a message with content. It's a message with that has truth in it. And and there's a heart, yearning in the human heart for truth. That's where the church needs to stand strong right now. We can't give in to the cultural vicissitudes, the waves that go back and forth within our culture right now. That's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying live in accord with that righteousness which the church is teaching. That's what will transform the world is when we live according to that standard of righteousness. And the goal of this passage that uh, Paul wants to accomplish with baptized believers is that they live lives in obedience from the heart to the standard to which they have been taught in a sinless, holy manner. That's the trajectory they want. And just a few things then to point out in this passage. It's a great passage. Um, first of all, in this, his argument is based on three pieces of truth that um, are axioms of truth that are a part of the deposit of faith that are not necessarily shared by other religions or other philosophies, but what Paul builds his argument on, which are truths. And in the diagram, I've bolded these in purple, so you can see them. Look at the diagram, but but here they are, verse fourteen. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. That's a new axiom. That is a Christian truth. That by grace we are free from sin. And the second truth, in verse sixteen which is kind of a philosophical, um, seems obvious, that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. That seems like just an obvious thing. You surrender to someone, well, you're their slave. And as Ken, you mentioned earlier, that's a truth in our culture. Who you choose to serve, you become a slave to. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And the third truth that's a part of the deposit 
is the one we mentioned earlier in verse 23, that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the context of the entire deposit of faith that we've received from the apostles, that that is absolutely true. And so we are called to know the trajectory of what we are choosing. Now, the, the theme, the analogy that Paul chooses in this passage is to talk about this choosing as a choosing of slavery. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And Ken, I think it's significant that Paul, in the midst of his argument, verse 19, kind of backed off a little bit and said to uh, these Christians, hey, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And I think, Ken, it's significant that that puts a little caution on this idea of us being slaves to righteousness, slaves to God, to, to make sure that we understand that in the context of the maturing of a Christian. Yeah, I think that that's true. And it's the same way when Paul calls himself a slave at the beginning of uh, of his letters. Like at the beginning of Romans, he calls himself a doulos. And doulos <clears throat> meant a basically a slave in, in ancient uh, Greco-Roman times. Um, but what he's saying here, he says, I'm like a slave in the sense that I have a master that I'm serving. But it doesn't mean that, you know, we don't have the visions of Paul out in the picking cotton, you know, and being beaten with whips and so forth. It's not that. And he's saying the same thing here. You're going to be something like a slave in some regard. You're going to serve someone with your life. And again, I think this is confirmed in our observations of daily life. When people choose, for example, to put their careers above their marriages, or they choose to put their own desires above those of their children, or a country that chooses to go into debt and, 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 and for example, and to let the future generations have to pay for it, right? I mean, that's a moral kind of question. And and so I think that's what he's saying here. This is a little bit like slavery. Are you going to serve sin or are you going to serve righteousness? Now, I think it's very significant what he says in verse 22. He says, but now you've been freed from sin, but you've been made a slave to God or you've, you've come to serve God. And what's the fruit of that? The fruit that you have is, or what's the result of that? The result of that is sanctification. And that, and the result of that, sanctification, is eternal life. But notice what he says. Then in verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death. Now, that follows. You live according to sin and you will die. Then he doesn't say, but the wages of righteousness is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? He says, no, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter how holy we become. The gift, God giving us eternal life is way beyond our righteousness. (laughs) We could never get to it. And the merit that we have is only the merit that Christ gives us. That's why he calls it a free gift. Because eternal life with God in heaven is nothing, is nothing we could ever earn or deserve. No matter how righteous we become. But we do have to become righteous because that's a matter of living a faithful life 
in this world. One of the faithfully to God. One of the reasons I think it's important to, and thanks, Ken. That's awesome. Um, One of the reasons I think it's important to understand that sometimes Paul is speaking to more mature Christians and sometimes to less mature Christians is so that we understand the language he's using in the context. I think that makes sense of 1 John. I think John is writing to very mature Christians as a mature Christian trying to draw people to more maturity. Paul elsewhere talks about a way that we ought to live, and he says that's the way the mature should likewise live. I think that's in Philippians chapter 3. You know, he talks about this, you know, the, the importance of our Christian growing, our Christianity growing in maturity. It's not like once I've accepted Jesus, I've arrived, that we are to be growing. And, for example, the Psalms and the Proverbs all talk about that the beginning of the journey is fear. The beginning, beginning of wisdom is fear of God. The early church fathers, every single one of the earliest church fathers, when they talk about what do you do when you bring up your kids, every one of them says bring up your kids in the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning. But the spiritual writers have often talk about this journey we go from servile fear to filial fear. We, we grow and we begin with a, a turning to God, becoming his slave because we don't want to go to hell. And so it's out of fear of damnation that we turn to God. And the, the less mature, the beginning Christian begins that way. But in time, by grace, we, we can mature to where the reason we're growing in holiness is not just because we're afraid of hell, but because we want, out of love, to stand before God without embarrassment. So we grow from our understanding of ourselves as slaves and servants to seeing ourselves more as sons and daughters, understanding that's really what grace has done to us, is drawn us into that intimacy. You know, uh, uh, I think about that uh, when I think about my own children, is that when they were young uh, and they didn't quite understand why they should or should not do things, that I, we would tell them, don't touch the stove, you'll get burned. And they may not understand that. So we don't worry about all the explanation yeah. yet. We just say, don't touch the stove, because you'll get burned. Later on, yeah. they've matured to the point where they understand that. So when Paul here is using language of slavery, he's, it, the point is, he's dealing with Romans who apparently have not matured like they ought to in their faith. Let's select maybe the Christians at Philippi. Uh, so, or like in Hebrews, the author talks about the need for them to grow beyond the initial teachings to a more mature teaching. Well, in this case, he's, he's using these images, but I just want to point to one more thing, Ken. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. So the point is that as we grow in maturity, we never, ever should forget the fear of God. That's why, Ken, that beautiful image that C.S. Lewis used when he uh, drew the image of God as Aslan 
this this ferocious tiger that on the one hand was soft and cushy and lovey-dovey, but at the same time could rip your heart out <laughs> because he's a ferocious lion. Yes. <laughs> God is a both and. So we never lose both and in our maturity. Yes. And there's the wonder of grace, isn't it? That God, who <clears throat> doesn't have to let us exist even one more second because he is an almighty and all-powerful God, and the distance between us and God is so great that <clears throat> were he to wipe us out from the face of the earth, <laughs> he would still be good and righteous. But he doesn't do that. In love, he embraces us and brings us into his embrace. And that's why it says so beautifully in the Psalms, you know, that I, I seek the courts of the Lord. I desire God. I want to be in the presence of God because God in his mercy draws us into that. I've been re recently rereading a book by a, a Pope Benedict, uh, w which was written before he was Pope. It was called God is Near Us. And he about this. And it seems to me that Pope Benedict really uh, yearned for this and, and still does, I suspect, especially as he gets closer to his death, yearning to be in the presence of God. This is all what Paul means when he says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's being in the presence of God and yet being in the presence of a God who is so all-powerful, so all-present, so all-good that being his presence is is both at the once comfortable but also uncomfortable because of who he is. He's the almighty God. Ken, real quick, we're, oh, maybe we don't have time for you to get into the Greek. I really wanted to, but he uses this word yield. And I, I just think it's yeah. a powerful analogy. Verse 13 and verse 19. Verse 13, yeah. yield yourselves to God and your members to yeah. God. And then verse 19, not just as once you once yielded your members to iniquity and to greater, so now yield your members to righteousness. I really love that. That's really allowing grace, allowing yeah. grace to change us. And it's really interesting that in verse 13 particularly, you see the contrast between continuing, don't continue to present your your members to the as instruments of right unrighteousness or sin but make a decision to present yourselves to God every day we make decisions to present ourselves to God or not that's the challenge of the christian life yeah yielding to God allowing him into your life yeah. by baptism and faith we've been freed from the the reign of sin in our life and that enables us now to have the freedom and our Lord gives us the church and the sacraments and the Eucharist through which we receive his divine life, which empowers us to change us. But still, out of our stubbornness, we've got to let him have our lives. God bless you. <laughs>